Open with me in your Bible to James chapter 1. I'm going to be in verse 12 today. One verse. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in your mercy, would you look on a weak and afflicted people and give us, by your grace, the ability to bring our hearts in line with your truth. Give us the mind of Christ. Help us to see all of our trouble and all of our struggles in this life in light of eternity. We ask this in your name and for the glory of your Son. Amen. So here's how James 1.12 works with the preceding verses. Um, you have uh, what seems to be a, a pretty intentional little framing of the discussion because a lot of the words that showed up in the very first paragraph in James in verses 2 through 4 show up in verse 12. So for example, uh, verse 12 talks about uh, blessed is the man or blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. That word of trial goes back up to verse 2, where we're told to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Back down in verse 12, the one who perseveres under trial in verse 12, that word for persevere is the verbal form of the word that shows up in verse 3 that many of our versions translate as endurance or steadfastness. And then last, in verse 12, the statement that the man who perseveres under trial or the one who perseveres under trial, once he has been approved, that word is related to the word in verse 3 that says the testing of your faith produces endurance, the testing, the proving of your faith. So at least three key words, trial and endurance and proving, from verses 2 and 3 show up in verse 12. So I, I think what we ought to do is consider that in some respect, what James is doing here is perhaps framing these first 12 verses for us. We ought to consider that all of these verses in some way are connected or tied together. And in a very simple way, before we get into the, the verse itself, I think the way that we could read through verses 1 through 12 is something like this. Much of what we have it, starting at verse 2, talks about what God is doing in the time of our trial, what is happening right now when we're going through difficulties in life. So in verses 2 through 4, the Christian uniquely has reason to find joy in his or her trial because he knows that God is using that trial to develop character and to mature and perfect him, to make her, that Christian, more like Jesus Christ. Verses 5 through 8 go to say, when you're in the midst of this trial, it can be very confusing. 
You may not be able to know your right hand from your left. You don't know how to walk wisely through this particular trial. But if you ask God, God will give you wisdom. Not only does he develop endurance, the ability to be steadfast in the midst of trials, but he gives you the wisdom that you need to know how to walk through it. And then verses 9 through 11 from last week is addressed to people who are going through trial as a way to say, Although your trials may make you feel small and insignificant, like you're the refuse of the world, know that you actually enjoy an exalted position in the eyes of God. What looks like humility in the eyes of the world, what feels uncomfortable, is actually God's favor on you so that you will know the riches that belong to you in Christ. All of that, 2 through 11, talking about what is happening and how we ought to think about our trials as we're encountering them. What verse 12 does, verse 12 comes to say, and here's how we ought to think about the day in which we get to the end of our trials. What will be the end result of all of these trials that we encounter in this life? And James wants us to be thoroughly convinced that for the Christian, the end of every single trial that we encounter in this life, no matter how shallow or how deep, no matter how painful or uncomfortable, the end of all these trials is reward. Nothing that you encounter is empty and meaningless. None of it. So three things that we, that we want to draw out of this one verse today. Here they are. Number one, that our lives are filled with trials. Or if you want to be even more encouraged, instead of just stating it as a matter of fact, you could say, as a promise or a guarantee that our lives will always be filled with trials. How's that for encouragement on Sunday morning? So our lives are filled with trials. They will be filled with trials. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Number two, our trials lead to reward. And number three, it's our love of God that keeps us on the path to our reward. Our lives are filled with trials. Our trials lead us to our reward. And it's our love of God that keeps us on the path to our reward. Number one, our lives are filled with trials. It is a little sobering, disconcerting even, to see that when James talks about the fact that there is a reward coming to everyone who passes the test, everyone who endures their trials, their sufferings, their tribulations, when their faith is proven, they will be rewarded. But to see that that reward doesn't seem to be coming at least as soon as what we might like. The reward that James has in mind the ultimate reward is something that we get somewhere out there, somewhere in the future. Here, look, look closely. Go, go to verse 12. 
the reward that James says is coming is the crown of life. Everyone see that? When you persevere, when you pass through your trials, when you have been approved, shown to be true, then you will receive your reward, the crown of life. Now, here's the thing. Typically, particularly in the New Testament, there are two types of crowns, all right? One crown used used symbolically. I think this is a symbol. I don't think James is talking about an actual crown that we will wear, but the crown which is life. So if I can paraphrase here up front, I think that the way to understand this idea of the crown of life is when we use language to say that we will be, our crowning achievement is, we use that kind of language, it's like what, what sort of tops it all off. Our crowning reward will be life. Now that life, because we enjoy some sort of life right now, must be a life that we are not experiencing, at least not in full right now. But, but setting that to the side for a moment, there are two types of crowns that usually are referred to or pictured in this kind of symbolic language. One is a royal crown. Right? That's the kind of crown that you give to someone when they begin to rule and reign. The other kind of crown is what we might call the victor's crown. It was sort of a, a picture from, the, from the, uh, the Greek and Roman Olympic Games. And you get that crown, a, a wreath, that, was, that marked you out as a victor, as someone who had completed the race, who had won the race. You, you were crowned with that wreath, the victor's crown, at the end, but only after you had finished the race. They don't award medals or give crowns out halfway through the race. Okay, so whichever way you want to take, and I think that James is picturing the victor's crown here. That this is a long race that we're in, or at least it feels that way a lot of times. This is a marathon and not a sprint. I think he's picturing more of the victor's crown, that when we reach the end of our race, we will be given the reward of a life that we cannot possibly imagine. But the point is simply this. Whether you view the crown that James is talking about, the crowning reward, as a ruling and reigning kind of crown or as a victor's crown that you get at the end of your race, the point simply is that we are neither ruling and reigning right now nor have we finished our race. We rule and reign with Christ in the end when this life is over. We finish the race when this life is over. If we haven't received our crowning reward, that means, by necessity, that we have not finished our race. If our reward comes in the next life, that means that we will not finish our race until this life is over. And if it's not until we finish our race that we get the reward, that means as long as we are running in this life, the race, the course that God has laid out for us, we ought to expect that we are going to encounter one trial after another. No no one gets excited over that? This is, listen, it's, it's easy to, to sort of make light or joke and, and probably should refrain from that because I know, right? I know that here 
in this sanctuary right now, some of you are going through trials that, that seem absolutely unbearable. And the thought that this trial may continue until your dying day just sucks the life out of you. You just you can almost feel yourself droop with disappointment. Or some of you going through trials right now are so confused about what the Lord is doing that you don't know that you will be able to take another step and another step after that and still trust that the Lord is working in your life because everything seems so chaotic and so random and meaningless. Some of you deal with chronic pain that you would not wish on your worst enemy. Some of you struggle with mental or emotional issues that are a unique burden that very few people can understand unless they experience it for themselves. Some of you are dealing with the fallout of estrangement in your family or with other relationships. You've met with disappointment. You feel like your life is over and it is hopeless. And for for the pastor then to come and say, good news, your whole life is going to be one long trial, right, makes you say, I just want to check out. I'm done. Right? I want to be sensitive to that. We want to be sensitive to that. Verse 12 is not any sort of glib statement. Well, suck it up and be happy because one day it's all going to be better. That, I, nothing like that. No, no cheap, shallow comfort. But we can say this. Even though we know that our lives will be full of trials. We need not despair. Because we have already seen in James that God does not bring trials on his people in order to crush them or destroy them. He brings trials to his people to purify them and to refine them to make them more like Christ. And by making us more like Christ, the true Son, what God is doing in the midst of your trial as you bear up under that pressure, as you cling to the Lord, as you continue to walk in faith, He's proving His paternity. Right? He's proving that's, that's my child. If he wasn't my son, if she wasn't my daughter, she wouldn't still be clinging to me. I claim her. He's mine. Look at how he shows it. Look at how he proves it. You need not despair because God will give you wisdom 
to navigate all of the challenges of this life. Infinite wisdom is at your disposal. He will not leave you to flail around in confusion and in darkness. If you ask for wisdom, he will give it to you generously. And although you go through trials right now, it does not change the fact that he has chosen you to be rich in faith. All of the riches that belong to Christ belong to you. Sometimes it takes the stripping away of those other false riches, those false securities that we cling to in order for us to see where the true riches lie. But you are rich in Christ now. He has determined that this will work together for your good, that you will be conformed to the image of his son, that you will be glorified. You will not be lost in your trial. Not one person that the father gives to the son will be lost. You will not be lost either. And so in the midst of this life filled with trials, knowing that God is already at work doing good things, making us more like Christ, purifying our faith, developing our character, James would come back and say, and not only is God doing good to you now, he's going to do good to you in the end. There, there will come a time when your trials are over. There is rest coming for us. So what is, this, what is this reward that we're to look forward to? What kind of reward would motivate someone to continue to press through difficult trials? Back in verse 12... James says that the reward, what we receive when we reach the end of our trials, the end of this life, is the crown of life, or the crown which is life. That is, the reward that God gives to his people is life. The trouble is, is that our natural instinctive way to respond to difficulties in life is to withdraw from hardship and pain and suffering, because we think that in withdrawing from pain and suffering, we will preserve life, or we will conserve it, or we will be able to better cultivate our life. We think that if we remain on the path that keeps us in the midst of trial and suffering, that our lives are going to wither away. That our spirits will just be snuffed out because we will not be able to withstand it. 
Hold your place in James and go back with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Look at verse 14. The gate is small or the gate is narrow, and the way is… the the word that's used there is a word that, that has the idea of being constricting, pressure, right? In other words, what Jesus is saying, if we could oversimplify it, is that the, that the gate and the path that leads to life is narrow and it's hard. But the hard path that Jesus says every one of his disciples must walk is the only path that leads to life. What what is your other option? What, What is our other option if we will not walk the hard and difficult path, if we will not walk through trials when the Lord leads us there, what is the other alternative? The other alternative is to say, I'm done with this. There's a road over here that is much more spacious and convenient and comfortable. I don't have to check my riches and my baggage and my possessions at the gate. It's wide enough that I can bring all of this stuff in with me. You can do that. You can run to comfort. You can run to what's easy. You can run on that path where you'll find strength in numbers. People encouraging you, patting you on the back because look at all of us walking this easy, well-trodden path. But what will you get in the end? Death. Destruction. Is it possible that one of the reasons that God, as a good and loving Father, is intent to give trials to His children is because He knows that unless He keeps us bounded on the path to life, that we are too easily led astray, we will wander from Him when we feel comfortable. We will wander from Him when we grow apathetic. We will stray from him when we are overconfident, and we will do that to our own harm and destruction. And so, as a measure, as a sign of his love for you, he will not allow you to be comfortable so that you will be destroyed in the end. He would much rather keep you uncomfortable right now so that you will live.
That's the sign of a good and loving father. When our kids were young, we did not give them full freedom to roam wherever they wanted to. They had very specific boundaries because if they strayed outside of these boundaries, they could be struck down by a car in the road. You have to stay here. We did that because we loved them. God bounds our way in. He frames our way. He makes it narrow and constrictive so that we will jettison, we will have to leave behind all the other things that we would ordinarily put our hope and our confidence in so that our only hope and confidence can be put in the Lord. He keeps us in a place of need so that we will continue to return to Him. So that in the end, what He will give to His people is life. Go back to James chapter 1, back to verse 12. Notice at the, at the very beginning of verse 12, the, the person, the Christian that is being described here is, is said to be blessed. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. So the person who runs their race to the end, who remains faithful through all of life's tests and trials, who shows by God's grace that this is a genuine faith, that they are a true son and daughter of the king, that person is said to be blessed. And the, the blessedness or the state of blessing that we have at the beginning of verse 12 is in some way tied to this idea of being crowned or given life. So it's a blessed life, or if you want to use the, the super fancy term, the beatific life. Right? Think of, think of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, right? Beatitudes, beatific. The, the Beatitudes are describing, is Jesus describing what true blessing looks like, where it comes from. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Do you hear all of that? Blessed are these kinds of people right now because of what's coming to them in the end. What's coming to us in the end is something like a blessed life, a perfectly happy and contented life. As the Lord would have it, I'm reading an old dead guy in the run-up to Sunday, not for this message at all, and I come across this statement about what this next life will be like. Here's the way he describes it, that we, all of us who want happiness, he says, will find happiness in the end through faith in immortality. That's when our true happiness comes perfect, unending happiness. When that day comes, we will not want to live a bad life in that bliss, nor will he want anything that he lacks, 
nor will he lack anything that he wants. Just pause on that for a second. Do you hear what is being said there? He will not want anything that he lacks, and he will not lack anything that he wants. You will want only what is good and right, and because it's good and right, you will have every ounce of it. You will not want anything that is not good and right, and so you will have none of it. You will be so thoroughly satisfied with no guilt, no pressure, no tension in your heart and mind. Whatever he loves will be there, and he will not desire anything that is not there. Everything that is there will be good, and the most high God will be the most high good and will be available for the enjoyment of his lovers, and thus total happiness will be forever assured. Can you even begin to imagine what that means? Total happiness, forever assured. Not one moment, not one millisecond will you ever not be happy. Will you not be satisfied? Will you not be content? You will never have a passing thought or curiosity about whether or not there might be something else that you can enjoy out there somewhere because you'll have all of it. Every good and perfect gift will be yours to enjoy forever. And most importantly, because the only true source of all goodness and happiness and beauty, God, will belong to you. And all you have to do is be faithful in this life. If you continue to follow in the footsteps of your Savior through trial, through tribulation, through testing, you have been promised that there is coming to you an eternal weight of glory and joy and reward far beyond all comparison. As Paul would say, compared to what we gain in eternity, all of these afflictions and tribulations and tests and trials are light in comparison. Our lives are filled with trials. Our trials lead us to our reward. We dare not leave the path that the Lord has laid out for us because if we do, we will not end up with the reward of life. And number three, what keeps us on that path is our love of God. Look back at verse 12. And consider what James does here. In verse 12, he starts off by saying that the man who is going to be rewarded is the man who perseveres under trial, right? That's the very beginning of verse 12. 
Once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised. Notice the last line of verse 12. He doesn't say that he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who persevere, although he could have. He says he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In other words, the person who perseveres, the Christian who perseveres, is the person who loves the Lord. They're one and the same. If you do not love the Lord, you will not truly persevere. Listen just to a couple other places in the New Testament that bear witness to this in strikingly similar ways. Here's Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Remember the the famous statement, I fought the good fight, I finished the course. In the future, Paul says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9, talking to people who are under test and trial, says that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then listen, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And John says in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why, why, if unending joy and delight and pleasure is offered and promised to us in the presence of God, why would we not continue to pursue that end? And I think what the Scriptures would say is, because that's not what your heart wants. The people who love the Lord, their hearts, God continues to draw them through their hearts, through the work of His Spirit, their hearts, He is refining and cultivating a deeper and more profound love for Him so that when all of these other distracting, temporary, piddly things are taken away, we find them to be very shallow and cheap compared to the riches that we have in the person of Christ and in the presence of God. This is sobering. Is it possible that one of the reasons that you find it so difficult to persevere in the midst of your trial is because your heart is just not set on the glory of God? Is it possible that your heart finds itself loving the things of the world more than God himself? And if that's so, and you belong to him, 
Is it any surprise that he would do whatever is necessary to strip away those lesser loves so that the greater, truer, eternal love would be the only thing left in your heart? How is he going to do that if not to take from you the cheap loves that so easily distract you? Listen to this great statement from John Newton. He says, covetousness, or the love of the world, is one great cause of the many trials we meet with in life. Because we love the world more than we should. Because God help us, we love the world at times more than we love God. That, Newton says, is one great cause of the many trials we meet with in life. The principle of this evil is so strong in us and so powerfully nourished by almost everything around us that it is seldom suppressed but by a course of sharp discipline. Many persons have now reason to be thankful for those dispensations of providence which once seemed most severe. If the Lord had not seasonably defeated their plans of life, withered their plants, broken their cisterns, and wounded them where they were most keenly sensible, they might, no, they would, have gone on from bad to worse. But losses are gain. And the heaviest trials are mercies when sanctified to bring us to our right minds and to guide our feet into the paths of peace. Especially for you here today, if you are here going through the depths of a trial that has shaken and rattled you to your core, the assurance that God has given to you in his word is that even this is for your good so that you would find the things of this world to be increasingly dim compared to the light of his glory. That you would be able to say with the psalmist at the end of it all, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on this earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the portion of my life forever. What a good and loving God we have to give us what we need to be able to love him more fully so that we can be satisfied by him, the only one who can satisfy the longings of our hearts forever. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that proven character does not disappoint. The character that you develop within us does not disappoint because your love has been poured out 
within us by your spirit that you have given to us. We believe, Father, help our unbelief. Help us, Father, even if through tears, even if through clenched fists, to bend the knee and to acknowledge that anything that comes from your hand is good and necessary for us in the end. That because we love you and because we've been called according to your purpose, that you are using even the pain and the suffering, the sorrows and the confusion of this life to draw us closer to yourself, to find that every day is another step in the process by which we die to ourselves and we follow Christ. And that as we look to Christ, we would consider that just as he took up his cross and suffered and then entered into his resurrection glory, that you have offered and provided for us that same pattern. Give us, Father, a greater joy in you than we can find in this world. And help us to see just how empty and bankrupt all that this world has to offer truly is in light of the glories that are to come because of the work of Christ through the power of your spirit. Amen.